This is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. Our taping is made possible with the support of Raider, a hands-on IT service provider that integrates all of your needs for advanced technical support, effective communication options, and cybersecurity. Raider's motto is, you just want it to work. We understand. Please visit RaiderSolutions.com for more information. The generosity of Oxner Lafayette General also makes this podcast possible. As Acadiana's largest nonprofit regional health system with more than 4,500 employees, Oxner Lafayette General strives to prove that caring is their top priority. In continuous efforts to reach more patients, Oxner Lafayette General facilitates telemedicine services to schools, businesses, and government offices to make healthcare more accessible for everyone. For more information, please visit OxnerLG.org. Christy Malloyd, Associate Professor of Political Science and Associate Dean of the College of Liberal Arts, joins us today. Professor Malloyd is a co-editor of The Party is Over, the new Louisiana politics that was just released by LSU Press. The Party is Over provides a comprehensive reassessment of Louisiana state politics from institutions to politics to policy. She's also currently working on a new publication entitled Civic Habits, Recovering the Practice of Citizenship in American Education, which assesses the intellectual history of habits in American civic education. A Virginia native, Christy is from the heart of rural Appalachia. Christy's an avid reader, gardener, and beekeeper, which I want to hear about. <laughs> Professor Christy Malloyd, welcome to Discover Lafayette. Thank you, Jan, so much for having me here today. I'm so thrilled. I think back to last summer in 2021, uh, I was working with Protect the City Committee. We're mm-hmm. studying um, our current form of government and trying to keep it nonpartisan, but just looking at does it work for the mm-hmm. city of Lafayette not to have its own mayor, you know, as we move forward into the future. And there you were at at least <laughs> one of the meetings. And I didn't realize what you taught. I'd heard about you, but you must love political science. I mean, this must just really be fun to be teaching. It's an interesting time, Uh in part because politics is so negative, but political science brings an analytical framework Mm -hmm. that gives, I think, students the tools to really step back from the vitriol and think about what are the factors that are influencing how our institutions work, why do people act the way that they do, Mm -hmm. and why do they advocate for some policies over others? And when you can really prepare students with that sort of research mindset, mm-hmm. it, it changes the way that they're able to engage in political discourse that I think really makes those kinds of conversations much more productive. When you were coming up, were you interested? Like, were you a young person that read the paper or kept up with the news and politics? No, that came fairly late in, in high school and early in college. And I always thought I was going to be an attorney. You did? And uh, I, I interned uh, mm-hmm. with a federal judge and thought, well, this isn't nearly as interesting as the political institutions and the campaigns that I've been reading about right. in my political science classes. Right. And so I fell in love more with the the characters and, and the, the way the institutions mm-hmm. are built and the history, really, of, of how we got to where we are. Mm-hmm. 
and it's become a lifelong pursuit since then. Right. I didn't ask you where you had gone to college. I went to undergrad uh, at a smaller liberal arts school uh, called Emory and Henry College, a, a private Methodist school in, oh. in southwestern Virginia. Uh-huh. Then I did my doctoral work at Texas A&M University and College Station. And what brought you to UL in 2015? Uh, it was the opportunity to work at uh, UL. Uh, my partner and I both uh, were able to get jobs here and were very happy to be able to come to a very warm place mm-hmm. and welcoming place and really contribute to a vibrant university. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about your book. Um, I was mentioning to you before we started taping, I had Pearson Cross on, the co-editor mm-hmm. of The Party is Over, The New Louisiana Politics, and that was in late 2020. So you guys were really still working on pulling together yes. the, um, the chapters, but you have 14 different chapters, if I'm remembering right. Yes, that's and, correct. And the, it's like a, a series of essays. So yeah. different people that are well-known, Jeremy Alford, um, Dr. Yeah. Stephen Barnes, Gary Wagner, mm-hmm. and others that we all know locally have contributed to your book. It's yeah. it's really uh, so comprehensive. We're we're very excited about that aspect of it. I mean, there are other books that have been written by single authors about very particular aspects of, of Louisiana politics. You mm-hmm. can get a, a book on the history of the Long family, or um, you know, the the Edwards families, or, or different campaigns. But we really tried to zoom out to that twenty thousand mm-hmm. foot level. Mm-hmm. And by bringing in experts in policy and institutions, um, we really, I think, have an all-star team. Not to brag on ourselves, but it it was nice to see the collaboration between people who often talk about the same things but don't necessarily get to work together. Mm -hmm. And so we have... People who are who are scholars, uh, but also people who are advocates and and in the trenches journalistically studying these things every day. Yeah, thought leaders like Jeremy Alford. I was really glad to see he contributed to this, and that's kind of how I knew your book had been published. He was thrilled. Yeah, I think to be a part of this. So if you want to talk about what he contributed, because people know him, I think um, certainly from his political analyst. Jeremy helped us out on our. institution section writing really about the changes that we've seen in the Louisiana legislature. Much of the book is about how Louisiana politics has changed. Mm-hmm. And and Jeremy's chapter in particular takes a deep dive on the the nature of the way that campaigning and the way that term limits have really altered yeah. many of the relationships within the Louisiana legislature. I, there are many folks who who see the benefits uh, of term limits, of not keeping a politician Mm -hmm. in a career for his or her entire life. But it's also changed the dynamics and the way that people in the state legislature are able to build those long-term relationships Mm -hmm. that allow them to negotiate over multiple projects. uh, Over over, many years. Over many years. Right, right. So Jeremy... I think he analyzes those trade-offs very sharply, showing Mm -hmm. you do get more turnover, but there is a cost, uh, perhaps to a sense of camaraderie and the public good, Mm -hmm. that comes with that kind of elimination of term limits. I was shocked to see um, the number of people that used to be uh, registered Democrats really just even 20 years ago. Yes. And it's been a dramatic change now. Of course, we're Republican, you know, stronghold here. 
But when I was younger, I lobbied. I, I worked in the state Senate when I was in law school. Mm-hmm. And I remember just being a quiet place where everybody was, they worked together. And I, I didn't realize that most of them were probably, they were Democrats, you know, but there wasn't a lot of fighting. Um, and then in the past 10 years or so, we've just seen how there's so much partisan bickering yeah. and, and gridlock. And it didn't used to be like that. No, I mean, Louisiana was such a politically distinctive state. As many southern states, it had uh, a history of being predominantly a democratic state, Mm -hmm. big D, democratic. But really, we've, and it held out longer than most other states in the south, that we saw the shifts happen in Alabama and Mississippi and, Mm -hmm. and Georgia much sooner. But Louisiana had held out in part because the division wasn't Republican versus Democrat. It was the the Huey Longites and the mm-hmm. anti-Huey Longites. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'd forgotten all about that. I remember my family <laughs> used to talk about that years ago. It's it sort of... Like the Hatfield and McCoy. Yes. It, and it came along with a set of policy preferences of, about how active do you want your government to be, where should our tax dollars be going... But we started to see this national trend of partisan identification really start to trickle down in Louisiana, again, later than other states. But the past 15 years, and especially pronounced in the past 10 years, we've saw the completion of many people who had been lifelong registered Democrats who decided in their pursuit of elected office, they would switch their party affiliation, some to independent, but most went to being identified Mm -hmm. as Republicans. Now, interestingly, we haven't seen that same completion in the voting electorate. So if you look at Louisiana's voting population, we still have what many people would consider an inordinately high number of registered Democratic voters Mm -hmm. compared to the number of office holders who are registered Republicans. And people outside of the state puzzle over that Mm -hmm. sometimes, thinking, well, why aren't they electing more Democrats? But because we have an open primary system, mm-hmm, which is fascinating, you you don't have to register with the political party whose primary you're participating in. Right, so you can vote for you any can, party. Exactly. Uh huh. So people haven't had the same pressure that they've had in other states. That if they want to participate in the Republican primary contest, they would have to switch. Mm-hmm. So I do remember that in the book. I guess that was Jeremy Alford's chapter that Edwin Edwards was actually the one pushing that open primary because yes. at that point. Uh, the state was predominantly Democratic, of course, but they would run against each other. And then there'd be one lone Republican that would run, mm-hmm. and he got great support from his party. Yeah. But the Democrats couldn't learn to work together, so Edwin <laughs> thought, let's just let everybody get in the race, and maybe the top two Democrats will be the ones we vote for. But and over time, that didn't work as well. Yeah, it, it definitely, in a, a Democratic-centric state, setting up a system that allowed the at least two primary, the top two Democratic candidates to face off against one another, if no one secured a majority Mm -hmm. vote in the first round, certainly privileged the Democratic Party. But we can see today in our state and especially our local elections that that has shifted Mm -hmm. where we often, if we go to the point of a runoff, if no one has obtained a majority in the first round, then it's often two Republicans who are facing off against one another. Right. Are fighting yes. among themselves, <laughs> yes. like in the first governor's race where John Bell Edwards ended up winning. Yes. Yeah. And that structure of the way that we use our ballots to elect 
um, office, I think, definitely advantaged Governor Edwards in that situation. Do you know if we're the only state that has an open primary system? No, there are definitely others are. that that use it, uh-huh. uh, and there are even others that use what we call the jungle primary or the top two runoff system. Mm-hmm. But it's not the most common. Many more states have moved towards using closed primary systems. I'm curious about your thoughts on on your chapter. Um, You talked about our consolidated government and and others. If you can kind of talk about the local political realm that you wrote on. Yeah, one of the things that has been very interesting to me, I moved to Lafayette in 2015, and I had taught classes on state and local government before about consolidated systems of local government, but I never lived in one. And there aren't many in the country. And there aren't many in the country. And... So I was sort of excited to be able to live at a place where I get to see what this looks like up close. And What does it look like to you? (laughs) Well, it's been interesting because I have found that many of the citizens of Lafayette, who are otherwise very politically knowledgeable and interested and activated, also find it very confusing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's somewhat baked into the design of Lafayette's particular system. If you contrast that with somewhere like New Orleans, which is a truly Mm -hmm. fully consolidated government. The city is the same as the the parish. The city is the same as the parish. There is no governing difference between Mm -hmm. those two entities. And that's extremely rare. It's one of only four in the country. you know, th- that system, I think, intuitively does make sense. Uh, it's easy for people to figure it out. But the problem with Lafayette, and not that it's an inherent fault, it's just a little more challenging to figure out who's responsible for which services, mm-hmm. who's responsible for which projects. And who's paying for what. Exactly. Yeah. And and I know, Jen, as you know from your work on the Protect the City Committee, trying to track down where those mm-hmm. funds are coming from and where they're going is a troubling thing. <laughs> right. And and the percentages, like we share, mm-hmm. we share responsibilities. Yes. Yeah. When I served on that Protect the City Committee, Christy, I, I felt as complicated as the money, like the management was, the issue's not really that complicated. Yeah. I mean, I, I just came down to believe, and I, I'm just saying this on the podcast, but um, that Lafayette needs its own mayor. Mm-hmm. And probably a, either a parish president or a parish manager, mm-hmm. only because sometimes you need to negotiate at arm's length. Like, sure. who is going to pay what percentage of this? And when one person is responsible for both budgets and getting the job done, it, it's um, especially when you have so many other cities within our parish, I, I just find it to be a bit much. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's interesting that I've uncovered in the political science literature is that. Many other uh, cities and counties that consolidated are facing, to some degree, similar issues. And in particular, what we saw in Lafayette that has replicated in other places is the city and the county merged, but the city center started losing population to the outlying areas. And so there have been over and over these places that took for granted that the city in Mm -hmm. merging would always be the center of political power and population power and tax power. Mm -hmm. But as that has become more diffused, it's really changed the dynamics. And so you do set up these tensions between the governing executive of the city and the governing executive of the parish or the county where one person is often having to wear two hats, as mm-hmm. we say. Yeah. And it doesn't make it clear uh, where, 
who's being represented or represented well in those mm-hmm. situations. And that's not to cast aspersions on any particular no, I was person. I to say that. It's not the individual. No, it's just it's the, the structure. structure. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It really is. And I came to see that. It's not about who's in office no. right now. It was set up in what we didn't realize was a defective way. And uh, I think it can be fixed. But I was curious if that that's what you wrote on. Yes. And we're just in a minority. Like, there are very few counties mm-hmm. or parishes like us in, in the United States. Yeah. So. And in many ways, Baton Rouge is facing yeah. similar, in some ways, even more severe issues, uh, especially with the the city of St. George essentially attempting mm-hmm. to secede from, from Baton Rouge as part of oh, yeah, uh, their hot. whole consolidated government process. My brother lives in that area, and he's just all hot about this. He wants out of Baton Rouge. He doesn't feel like he gets any services, you know? Yeah. And of course he does. But, I mean, yeah. he feels very strongly, and he doesn't have kids in the school system anymore. It's just it's a yeah. fairness thing, he says, you know? So I learned not to bring that up <laughs> when we're barbecuing. <laughs> It definitely, I, I often say local politics is the most interesting it politics is. because you you get to know a real cast of characters mm-hmm. that are involved. And in many ways, local government touches people's lives in ways that state and especially the federal government feels very distant. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I care about people trimming the trees properly outside my house when I need to make sure my power lines are going to make it through the next hurricane. Exactly. And I, you know, figuring out who's going to be in charge of those things and will they do that job effectively matters to my day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. You're trying to tell me I should be grateful that they're, <laughs> they're trimming trees just while we're taping. It's I, one of the many yeah. services that our city provides. <laughs> and we do lose our lights after hurricanes because we have above-ground utilities in the front part of the neighborhood. So I will be grateful and not, <laughs> not dissing that. Well, look, before we move on, um, Dr. Malloy, I'd like to pause and reflect back on an interview we did with your co-editor, Pearson Cross, who also is an associate professor of political science at UL Lafayette. In this clip, Pearson talks about how Louisiana used to be what he called or referred to as sui generis or different from the other states, but now not so much. And this moment is made possible by FACET, which offers career transition services and executive coaching, and they've done so for 40 years. FACET's career outplacement services employ a personal touch, boost morale, and lower the cost of severance. Visit facetgroup.com for more information. We people, your success. And now the moment. The party is over. What, what prompted that title? What prompted it is the things that are making Louisiana, or used to make Louisiana so unusual, are gradually fading away. Such as? So, well, uh, the way we used to do campaigns, the way we used to tolerate corruption, Mm -hmm. the way we used to not have all this slush money and we would not hold our politicians responsible, uh, the way we seem to be immune to national trends and so on, all of that's changed. We've gradually become a fairly ordinary deep south state. So whereas we used to be able to say we're not like Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia or Arkansas, the fact is from a political standpoint, we're very much like mm-hmm. those now. We've kind of, we're Republican, we're majority Republican. We have a mm-hmm. large black African-American population that are Democrats. The majority here are Republican. We're a low tax, you know, high poverty state. We're very much like the rest of the South. We used to be sui generis, you know, unusual, unique, but less so. 
Welcome back to Discover Lafayette. We're here with Professor Christy Malloyd, and she is the co-editor of The Party is Over, The New Louisiana Politics. And uh, I hope to, before we go on, I hope you'll visit discoverlafayette.net to not only find Professor Malloyd's interview and Pearson Cross, but over 250 others where you can listen to all the interesting people we have locally. So let's go back to what you we were talking about at the beginning about how Louisiana, historically, people looked at us, and they probably still do in many cases uh, that don't know how we've changed, but they looked at us as people of Huey Long and Edwin Edwards, like crooked, banana republic, people used to call us, um, yes. just thinking we were really different. Our laws come from the French. Mm-hmm. We've got different lingo, and we're just different. Yeah. But in some ways now, we're just like the surrounding states. And I, I found that to be a fascinating assessment in the book. Yeah. One of the, the chapters that really stands out that, that helps track how this happened is uh, Bob Mann's chapter on the transition of the media, and especially local media. Something that we saw after the 2008 financial crash was lots of local newspapers that had held up, been vibrant sources of information about local elections and candidates and what was going on at the town hall meeting. Those papers started to, in the worst case scenarios, fold entirely or outsource much of their coverage of political analysis to larger conglomerations. Who didn't have local reporters. Exactly. Was it because of advertising, like they just couldn't support the operation? Part of it was just the the lack of funds that sort of Mm -hmm. dried up after that housing bubble finally burst, or the mortgage lending bubble burst. So what, what man really uncovers in his chapter is the direct relationship between the way that local news coverage declined and the rise of national partisanship trends and and political narratives. Mm-hmm. And I, we've seen this most explicitly in Lafayette whenever we had our last round of, of local elections in 2019. There was, of course, conversations about local issues, about drainage, about potholes, mm-hmm. Uh, What are we going to do about Republic services? (laughs) But there was also lots of conversation about second right amendments Mm -hmm. and abortion. Mm -hmm. Which has nothing to do with local uh, Almost nothing. Uh, But those have become such dominant parts of the conversation through national news Mm -hmm. sources. Because when you turn on the news at night, most of the coverage, even on our local news stations, uh, is really drawn from the national Mm -hmm. landscape that we lose a lot of the nuance of what's happening at the mm-hmm. policy level mm-hmm. in our own communities. So the digital age, you know, not only were we losing these local reporters at the on the paper, you know, the digital news, whatever, I guess yeah. it all goes together now, but on the TV, and then social media has just taken over. And I guess, you know, I, I found that fascinating in the book that people go to the news that they want to hear. Yes, You know, and much. we're not getting... Um, I guess, the full spectrum of what the facts are. And then when people run for office, there used to be a lot of stumping. They would go mm-hmm. four or five times a day. They'd stop here, stop there, be at the barbershop, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And now it's ads, used to be on TV mm-hmm. and now online. Yeah, that... that I, I, didn't, I hadn't realized how much of a switch that had been so quickly. Certainly, the, the death of retail politics, mm-hmm. as we often refer to it, where candidates would be 
on the trail, meeting with people, having conversations. Mm -hmm. And it was a genuine back and forth where the candidates had to be confronted in a very intimate and visceral way with people who might have very different ideas Mm -hmm. than them or had problems and they wanted to be heard. Today, you can run a campaign primarily through social media sources and you have the choice to really filter who you're hearing, who you're listening to. It changes the way that we think about what's important because we get to select Mm -hmm. who we're hearing from. And with COVID, I know people couldn't be in crowded situations. And so that's caused even more online interaction, which isn't interaction at all. I mean, I guess you can speak, but it's not the same as being in a room where you can feel (laughs) the emotions. Yes, it definitely changes things whenever you are in, uh, you know, these public spaces. The number of times, uh, especially pre-COVID, when I would go to local government meetings and you would see citizens who would get up, who would give public comment on a, a policy that was at hand, and you could watch in real time while local officials changed their minds, who had advocated for one position and said, mm. oh, well, I've now heard from a lot of people, and I'm going to have to reconsider my position. Which is a good thing. It's such a wonderful moment for right. people to be able to take a moment and say, oh, you've made me think differently. Mm-hmm. Not that my principles have changed, my values have changed, but I have new sets of information. And that happens differently in a public space, face-to-face, than mm-hmm. it does in an online uh, news channel's comment site. <laughs> Do you guys have any um, idea of if we might return to more traditional politics with COVID ending at some point? I do think there is some appetite for a return, at least somewhat, to those kinds of face-to-face events for people to be able to re-engage. But I don't see a way around having social media maintaining a major presence Mm -hmm. in our lives. Mm -hmm. Now, I do think some people are getting more creative with the ways that we use digital mediums and are are able to replicate some face-to-face interactions. There are possibilities for candidates to use Zoom conferencing in ways that do actually allow dialogue Mm -hmm. in the way that a simple Facebook post doesn't. Right. Um, But it's certainly, it's changed and it's probably not going to come back entirely. Might be another book huh, down the yes. line, how COVID has changed things. Well, can you talk about the impact of Katrina on our state? I know that was really looked sure. at in the book also. Yes, we have Dr. Al Samuels from Southern University, who's the department chair there for political science, who wrote extensively about the effect of Katrina on, on Louisiana politics and how it's changed, as well as Jan Mahler's chapter that looks at the the ways that our social safety net have changed, especially following the economic changes that came with Katrina. And we lost such a large portion of our New Orleans population, and in particular the black population of New Orleans, that moved to other areas in Louisiana, but primarily moved out of state and never came back. They never did come back. And of course, we know that changed the food scene, we know it changed the musical scene, the cultural vibrancy of New Orleans, but it also had a major political impact. Uh, the schools in particular, you know, there was complete mm-hmm. reshuffling of the way that the school districts worked in New Orleans. Uh, in, and including, uh, one of the things that I write about is the investment of 
uh, outside national organizations being involved in our local school district races. I was shocked at that. People, I mean, they spend a lot of money on in these some local cases, races. Nearly a million dollars like being pre-charter, like people that yes. they want to see people in Bessie and local school boards that are Indeed. they want to knock the system upside down. Yeah. And and the the shifts that happened mm. following Katrina really opened mm. a window into not only for the people of Louisiana to think differently about mm-hmm. uh, the way that our public institutions would work, but really there was an opportunity for outside investors, if you want to think of them in that way. Investors, yeah. <laughs> to, Rabble rousers. To really you know, try to chart the course of local candidates mm-hmm. in those races. Um, so we definitely saw some major differences in that regard. Mm-hmm. What about, um, there's a chapter, Rick Swanson, Professor Rick Swanson from UL. Mm-hmm. Rights, if you can talk about that. It's- yeah, Rick, who I, I think many people have known uh, and hopefully have had a chance to see some of the presentations that he's done on the civil rights history, especially in Lafayette and Acadiana, contributes a chapter about racial memory in Louisiana and particularly looking at uh, Confederate monuments within the state. And this is have become a lens for thinking about many of the racial issues that we see from criminal justice issues and policing issues. But Rick really zones in on the struggle that we have had over what do we do with Confederate monuments, which were put up not at the end of the Civil War, but during the Jim Crow era in the 1920s, 30s, to really as symbols of oppression, uh, you know, that are, are monuments to say this is a place where whites are still in power in many cases and trying to um, hold on to this legacy of power. You know, we have, uh, thankfully, I think in Lafayette, you know, worked through the most prominent uh, mm-hmm. example of this with the Alfred Muton statue, and, and Rick worked very closely with Fred Brajon, leader of uh, Move the Mindset, who just recently passed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was an interesting moment in, in Lafayette in particular, because it had taken four years of people showing up at local government meetings to press for this, and not the destruction of a, the monument, but the removal, mm-hmm. the relocation of the monument. And uh, Mayor President Josh Guillory I think really was a turning point in that conversation when in the summer of 2020, he said, it's it's time. We have to come together as a city and we have to do something collectively about this. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've started to see that in other locations. But the fact that we are now in, in 2022 and, you know, we've only been having these conversations um, in the past few years is really it's good that we're having them, but it is, I think, surprising mm-hmm. to some people that we're only just having them. Many people, and, and Rick goes into this in his chapter, mm-hmm. this isn't something that has been taught uh, in in public schools. Well, it's generational. I yeah. know when I was coming up, you know, in the 60s, I know my textbooks were very different in the 70s. You know, I think I had in the 70s, I probably learned Louisiana history mm-hmm. in eighth grade back then. And uh, we we were taught differently than mm-hmm. today's kids, you yeah. know. Very, I mean, just different textbooks. 
One of the, the ways that I conclude the book is with the example of the uh, Confederate Defenders Monument, which sat in uh, the courthouse in uh, Lawn in Calcasieu Parish. And in, uh, the Calcasieu police jury had just voted to keep that Confederate Defenders Monument on the lawn of the courthouse. And just weeks later, Hurricane Laura blew through the town and knocked the, the statue over. And it, it was a story that ran in a lot of national media uh, sources, you know, the irony of the vote mm-hmm. and the tragedy of what happened in Lake Charles. But for me, it was such a poignant reminder of the way that so many different areas are coming together in Louisiana in particular, from our conversations about criminal justice reform to trying to adapt to climate change, to the transition from oil and gas to other industries. Mm-hmm. You know, when that that vote was taken and then the statue fell because of a hurricane, it was just this reminder of Louisiana is at a cross point for mm-hmm. so many different conversations and so many different policy challenges. We're fragile. We are fragile. We're also a very resilient people. We are. And, yeah. and we have come back. Mm-hmm. We're scrappy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've come back again and again. Um, it's one of my favorite things about being in Lafayette is learning about the history, really, of the, the decline of oil and gas in the 1980s and the way that people rallied mm-hmm. in the early 90s. You know, the creation of Festival International yeah, right. came out of that. Right, right. So... There's certainly a lot of challenges mm-hmm. that we bring up in the book, but I don't want anyone to think, oh, I'm going to have to read about politics and how demoralizing it is. Because no, there's I, a lot of I hope. Think there's, yeah. We try to build in a lot of opportunities, mm-hmm. recognize the, the moments where people have really been able to collaborate, especially in the past five or ten years, and show how that charts a path forward. Mm-hmm. Because even though we can see these national trends of polarization creeping in, that isn't fundamentally who we are as Louisianans. And that doesn't have to define us going forward. That's beautiful. I interviewed uh, Brian McDonald yesterday. I mentioned mm-hmm. that to you. Uh, he is um, the head of CEO of SchoolMint. Mm-hmm. And they moved here in 2020, their headquarters, from San Francisco. And the reason they came here was the people and the opportunities. And we were talking during the podcast, and I said, you know, we've really lost. We had such a high percentage in the 70s and 80s of um, direct and indirect employment from the oil and gas industry, I think it was close to 40%. I don't remember what the yeah. statistics were in your book. But, of course, we don't have that now. But we're becoming, you know, uh, an area for tech people. Mm-hmm. Healthcare is just booming. So we we continue to evolve and offer what's needed in mm-hmm. whatever era it is. So, um, But he, he just went on and on about we, we, they're just so glad to be here. Yeah. Such a, a better place to be raising a family and and to live in and to hire people. I, yeah. There's there's so much opportunity in Louisiana. You know, we could see that very easily in Lafayette with LUS fiber, mm-hmm. the literal infrastructure that we have here that provides opportunities for things like tech companies and healthcare mm-hmm. to really expand in vigorous ways. Mm-hmm. That there are chances that businesses can take, that entire industries can take on scrappy little, you know, Lafayette and Louisiana mm. to really build something new. Yeah. And those 
those shared values are real. One of my favorite chapters in the book is Mike Henderson, uh, who works at the the policy lab at LSU. And uh, he actually runs the Louisiana survey every year. And he does a really good job of breaking down the, the numbers from all of these Louisiana surveys that have come out showing that, yes, we do have uh, what he calls hyper-partisanship, right? People, people are very attached to their political identities, much like they are to their football teams, <laughs> right? Like we, we put on our jerseys and, and we have strong feelings. If you're Team R or Team D, D or if you're like me, Team No Party, yeah. I'm very strongly attached to my No Party attachment. You know, people feel strongly about that. But that doesn't mean that people don't share values on policy areas. And he does a magnificent job of really demonstrating through the numbers of, yeah, there, there are people who are, are far apart in terms of party ID, but there's a lot of consensus on investing in education and reforming criminal justice you know, people see a lot of opportunity to work together. Uh, and if we step away from, you know, take off our team jerseys for a minute, mm-hmm. there's so many opportunities for collaboration because people do have shared values in Louisiana. Yeah. I need to go back and read that. I, I went through the whole book. Some chapters I really Thanks. focused on more, but that one I want to look at in particular because that's how we get real, yeah. you know, real uh, lasting change when we can agree on what we agree yeah. on. And focus on that. Focus on the good things. One of my other favorite chapters is uh, from two scholars at at Tulane University, uh, Miria Hallman and Anna Mahoney Mitchell. They write on women in in politics and Mm -hmm. particularly looking at the the legislature and and city leaders. And they really point to the way that women in political leadership are changing the conversations in Louisiana. And there's some structural, we're behind a lot of other states. We have fewer women who are in elected office, especially in the state legislature Mm -hmm. and some other places. We need to do some work on really helping get women trained on how to run for office. We need to do more to help women who are campaigning get significant child care (laughs) during that time period. But when we see an increase in women in office, we see that the conversations change. And it's not just that they become nicer, but they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but just the types of topics that people bring to the table, the perspectives that people are coming from, you really get a much more nuanced discussion that happens in legislative bodies. And the more that we can get those diverse voices in there, the more that we have the chance to mm-hmm. sort of nudge out some of these old narratives about your team are, I'm team yeah. D. Oh, we've always done it like this <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yeah. It, there's some real possibility to innovate whenever we get mm-hmm. those different voices into office. Have you talked to many female politicians yourself? Have you talked to them about their yeah. challenges when they ran for office? I had a wonderful opportunity just a couple of years ago to interview uh, Mary Landry mm-hmm. and, uh, and Governor Blanco for, as the, the Blanco Center was opening on campus. And their conversations have stuck with me since then about their, their first ventures into politics and really fighting for things that today we sort of think, well, of course that's a political issue. But at the time was completely novel. Issues like 
domestic abuse is a political issue mm-hmm. um, and, and trying to work towards legislation on that, working as, as Governor Blanco did, uh, that education is central. If you can get education right, especially early childhood education, you solve so many other policy issues that happen down the road that if we can invest the time and resources in those, that mm-hmm. it really can make a difference. Um, there are definitely battles that, that women face when they're in the public eye that, that other people mm-hmm. don't. You know, everything from getting criticized from the way that you speak to the way that you dress. That, yeah, looks. Yeah, uh, all of that. Can you imagine uh, <laughs> if a guy was criticized, like, look at that hairdo. You know, like, who would do can that? Can you believe he wore that tie two days in a row? A blue suit again? <laughs> you know. But it's... It's worth the fight to go mm-hmm. through those small inconveniences because we desperately need the voices of half of our population mm-hmm. to be represented fairly in our electoral right. spaces. You know, it seems like guys are so used to giving money to in different ways. So mm-hmm. from what I've seen, because I've been involved in some races and... Uh, it's, it can be hard to ask for money when you feel a little insecure about asking for it. Yes. And I found that guys just more bold. And guys Definitely. tend to write the checks quicker too. You yeah. know what I'm saying? It's just a, it's a traditional culture that we have here. And I know that's changing. But to run for office successfully, you have to be able to ask for money. And it it, it's, it's tough. While you're dealing yeah. with the child care issues and <laughs> your job, Everything if you have else. one, and all these other you know, competing interests. But raising the money mm-hmm. and, and boldly going forth yeah. <laughs> is a challenge. There, there are some really good organizations, too, that have sprung up in the past five years that are working on training. Some of them are explicitly for training women, but training young leaders in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily to say you have to run for office, but to encourage people to at least think about it. Uh, too often, and, and I've seen this in, in American government classes, when I talk to, to freshman students about, you know, what do you think about running for office? They're like, well, I'm not sure if I want to be president one day. And I'm like, I'm not talking no, about no, president. No. <laughs> like, do you want to run for school board? <laughs> you know, I, people, I think, again, because we're so focused on what's happening at the national level, they forget that there are all of these opportunities right in their local communities to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are training opportunities out there that, and I think we're getting better as a state mm-hmm. about focusing on bringing more new voices and helping them learn how to do things like, how do you ask for money for somebody if you want to run for an right. office? What is the appropriate <laughs> way to, to ask for, right. you know, the maximum, <laughs> which is a lot. So. Yes. <laughs> well, it just seems like, uh, again, there's 14 different chapters and uh, the introduction to the state of Louisiana politics, but it's a really colorful and well-researched look at where we are in the 21st century with, you know, a lot of insight into where we've come from. So it must have been tough. I mean, how did y'all pick these four? It's it's 18 (laughs) people, right? You had more than 14 authors, but how did you guys pick these? Are are they the ones that always rise to the surface? um, Many of them are the ones that always rise to the mm -hmm. surface. We definitely wanted to make sure that we got people who weren't just in the university setting, though I think we got the cream of the crop Mm -hmm. uh, on people who who are uh, in university settings. We have UL represented LSU, Southern, Tulane, and ULM uh, among our authors. We definitely wanted to get people who had a nonpartisan take on policy issues, mm-hmm. but are in and around the legislature. So people like Jeremy Alford, yeah. people like Jan Mahler, um, 
it was really important to get their voices into the mix as well. And also the folks from Public Affairs Research Council who write on the state of the Louisiana Constitution. Yeah. Uh, that was interesting how it, long it is. <laughs> it, it's the second longest in, in America. You know, so bringing in uh, different policy experts was really important to us because uh, we definitely didn't want to write just an academic book. We wanted this to be something that mm-hmm. would be accessible for people who don't know very much but want to figure out where we are, mm-hmm. but also to give a peek in for the people like me who are you know, the, the politics geeks. You know, there's plenty of in here for them as well. Do you find, as we're winding down, I was just curious, um, you said you're an independent or no party. Mm-hmm. I don't know what if there's even any difference, but um, there is a difference? There is. Independent is an actual political party in the state of Louisiana. And no party is like, I'm, I'm, I'm not on any I'm team. I'm none of the above. I okay. don't. <laughs> okay, but you yes. can still vote in the open primary, yes. so it doesn't matter. But by teaching political science and the research that you do, Christy, do you find that it makes you more nonpartisan? Like, it seems like the more you know, you see that there's really no one right side. It depends yeah. on what the facts are. It does. I have, And I would have different colleagues who would answer this question differently, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Um, I grew up in a household where my, my mom was a committed Republican, my dad was a committed Democrat. <laughs> oh, no. And I always felt, you know, I'm, I'm just somewhere in between. I like both of my parents. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking that even from fifth grade in a, you know, a fake presidential election Mm -hmm. thinking, oh, I don't want to disappoint either of my parents. What do I do? But really, the more I've gotten involved in, in, in political science and learning, especially about local politics, the more I haven't, I've appreciated people from different sides Mm -hmm. who care deeply and are just trying to contribute to their community. Yeah. And that happens irrespective of political affiliation. Uh, there's a lot more that joins people together. And, and there's, there's utility in political parties. They help people get a lot of action done. They help mm-hmm. to, to coordinate. But there's a lot that can happen whenever people cross those party lines and just focus on what can we do to make our state right. better. Make our community safe. Yes. Yeah. And, and trim the trees. And trim the trees. No. <laughs> Fix the potholes. <laughs> Dig the ditches. <laughs> Was there anything that you thought I'd ask that I didn't? Did we cover what you had hoped? I think we did. Yeah. I just yeah. love the book. I want to encourage that. people to check this out. The party is over. The new Louisiana politics. We've been here with Professor Christy Malloyd, and I hope I've been pronouncing that you right. You got it spot on. Good. And co- co-edited by Pearson Cross, one of her colleagues at UL Lafayette. You can buy this online. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's out now. It's, it came out last week officially, yeah. so we hope uh, you can. And you'll also be able to get it at the uh, Lafayette Public Library oh, as well. So great. Uh, as a supporter of our, our public library system, if you don't feel like you can buy it, please go check it out from yeah. them. It's definitely a wonderful read. So thank you for taking time today. Thank you so Glad much. Glad to, to be with you here. I want to thank our listeners for your support of Discover Lafayette. Please consider, if you haven't, subscribing to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. And again, you can check out all of our podcasts at discoverlafayette.net. And our show wouldn't be possible without the support of our sponsors. I'd like to thank Oxner, Lafayette General, Facet Group, which offers career transition services and executive coaching, and of course, Raider. We couldn't do this without Raider, and in particular, Jason Sikora, who mixes our tape. Thank you for listening today. This is Jan Swift on behalf of Discover Lafayette.